0: This uh, message today, you might, might think I oh, would just kind of teed this one up for a, uh, for a Father's Day kind of a deal, but this one was teed up about three months ago, uh, and it just coincidentally fits in uh, exactly with uh, fathers and the concept of household. In the next three weeks at the project here, uh, I'm going to be talking about community and households, which is the way that the New Testament actually talks about the church. So uh, you don't, if you think church is come and see a show and watch an event, you don't understand the, the church the way the New Testament does, and specifically the way that Paul um, was inspired by God to understand it. The church is meant, firstly and foremost, to be seen as a household, as a family. So, uh, and with the risk of being controversial, I, I take this one all the time, so I'm going to take it again. Anytime I think you see the church being run like a business, it's not being run the way that God wants it to be run. It's meant to run like a family, which is why people who lead the church need to be able to run their own families because if they can't run their own families they can't run God's family and that's why we've got all those kind of rules about elders and so forth in there anyway so today some of you just kind of already going yeah yeah I'm on board with that well today is my arm twisting behind your back that this is exactly what the Bible says all right we're going to finish off with some stuff about dads so uh let's um I might just pray and we'll get started Jesus uh We really need your help. I need your help to say the right things that will bring life. And uh, people listening need your help to uh, be good soil into which your word can be planted. So, Lord, help us today. Help me. uh, Help the audience. Lord, none of us can do anything without you. You say that. You said that, Jesus, in John 15. You said, uh, apart from me, you can do nothing. So uh, we just want to humble ourselves before you and say, God, please help us. Uh, We will be helpless without you. Amen. I I often say uh, when I go into services and to people that I talk about that our current culture is in the midst of a social experiment. And the social experiment that's underway at the moment is one about households. And unfortunately I think we're going to realise that our social experiment's not working when it's too late. If you have a look generationally across our culture, it's probably the case that the only generation now that really has not been damaged is probably the grandparents at the moment. That would be what I would suggest. There are pockets of people that haven't been damaged in other generations, um, but that is probably the most intact generation relationally. So what I did is I got on the net the other night and I thought, I'm going to trawl through some Australian Bureau of Statistics um, statistics. And uh, there's another uh, offshoot of that called the Australian Institute of Family Studies that do some research on what's happening with people. I thought, let's get some data on what's happening with the household. And this is what I came up with. In 2006-2007, there were about 8.1 million households and 5.9 million families. Check this out, though. This is an interesting stat. Around one in four households is occupied by one person in Australia. One in four households has got one person living in it. It's interesting. In 2008, 60% of children aged zero to four years are in childcare. This is not a sermon about childcare, but that's interesting, isn't it? If 60% of our kids zero to four in 2008 are being brought up in a childcare centre, how much more important is it for parents to be really engaged in bringing up their children? That's a pretty high stat. I was a bit surprised by that. Check this out. In 2007, 49.3% of 48,000 divorces involved children. And in 2008, 49% of 47,000 divorces involved children. The numbers in the brackets are actually the numbers of children that are affected by marriage breakdown. Now, this is not a message on divorce. all right? But that's an interesting stat, isn't it? Over two years, you've actually got... Uh, the best part of 88,000 children, and we know that the effect upon children is significant in uh, marital breakdown. It's, it's very, very high. Um, and the stats are just going to get scary here in a minute. I should tell you before I put this next one up, I tried to get the latest data that I could on this next one, but I just couldn't find it anywhere in the Australian Institute of Family Studies and uh, the ABS. So please uh, uh, pardon my uh, old... Uh, information. This is uh, from 1998. Uh, As many as 80% of divorced children live in sole mother custody arrangements and as many as a third of children have little or no contact with their non-resident fathers. Think about that. Only 20% end up with someone other than their natural mother of of these 88,000 kids over two years Um, and a third of them have little or no contact with their dads. That is a huge stat. That's like almost, I mean you've almost got 90,000 there, that's almost 30,000 children over two years virtually have no contact with their fathers. There is a significant breakdown happening in the household. And governments know that households are important. In fact, I was going to put a quote up from Cicero, but Cicero was a Roman author uh, about 60 BC. Cicero knew this, he knew And the Romans knew that the household and the family at the turn of the century, the Romans knew that that was critical to the health of the nation. Check this uh, chart out. What you see here, and this is a stat here, that's significant, right? In care arrangements where there's been a marital breakdown, 26% according to the ABS of children have little or no contact with the other parent. Little or no contact means face-to-face contact occurring less than once a year or never. It's a really scary stat in the States that talks about uh, the percentage of divorced children, and I won't quote a number because I can't quite remember it, but there's a rather high percentage of divorced children who never get to see their dad after about three or four years. They just don't ever see him again. If you do the maths on this stat here, In a a two-year period, 18,211 children have just got themselves into a place where they're not actually going to see their natural father, maybe again, but at the very least, at the very most, once a year. That's what you get. Is this scary? I think it's scary because we've actually, there's a huge amount of pressure on the household. And uh, this is not a message about homosexual marriage, but now we've got legislation that people are trying to push in to let gays get married. And I think that's just another, another assault upon the household, upon the integrity of what's actually going on there. So, I wonder, where did the concept of household, where did the concept of family come from? Where did it come from? Do you ever ask yourself that? I mean, in one sense, you might say, well, God made it, but where did he get the idea from? Sorry? That's exactly right. You know what? There actually has always been a household. Before there was ever a created household, there was a household. All right? And Christians understand this as being the Trinity. I'll give you a couple of scriptures just to show this from the very start of creation. In Genesis 1, verses 1 and 2, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Here you've got the Holy Spirit. Then in Genesis 1, God says, let us. Well, you don't have us unless you've got more than one, do you? So let us. Let's do something. And then he says, let us make man in our image. And then if you get to John Uh, 1 verse 1, it says, uh, In the beginning beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And John here speaks of Jesus. So right at the start, you've got the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Community. That's a household. There's a family happening already. That's just how it is. And this is what we believe to be the Trinity. It's Father, Son, and and Holy Spirit. Now, we could go into in depth into how the Trinity fits together because the Bible is very clear that there's only one God. And my boys are still trying to understand this. All right, There's one God, but there's Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and the Father, and they're all God. But there's only one. Weird. All right? John Wesley had a good quote on this. Listen to this. I love this. He says, Bring me a worm that can comprehend a man, and then I'll show you a man that can comprehend the triune God. Fair call, isn't it? I mean, there's a sense in which there's a mystery in the Trinity, isn't there? It would make sense that there would be stuff about God that you and I would never understand. If we did, He's smaller than us, isn't He? So there's, there's a point that, that you get to where you just kind of think, well, I could get my beaker out and my test tube and do a test, but it's just not going to find the Trinity in it. There's a, there's a mysterious Quality to it. But the point here is that there always has been a household. This is a quote from Harold Best I used a few weeks ago. I love it. Even before, this is God, even before God chooses to create and before he chooses to reveal himself beyond himself, he eternally pours himself out to his triune self in unending fellowship, ceaseless conversation, and an immeasurable love unto an, af- an infinity of the same. I come from a little bit of a a spiritual kind of heritage where there's a sense like God's just cranky all the time. But he's not. He's very happy. There's the three of them and they just love each other. And they talk to each other and they connect with each other. They, They have fun together. They probably crack jokes together. And they just enjoy it. They enjoy each other's fellowship and each other's company and they just love each other unceasingly. And so what does this household do? Well, I want to suggest to you that this household spawns other households. That's what he does. So what you get in Genesis, is it any wonder that he creates animals that look like they've got some sort of household happening? I mean, that's Green Central Thursday night, isn't it? <laughs> All right? Look at that. And this is Father's Day lunch. That's dad right there, look at him. Now, <laughs> yeah, someone might argue, yeah, but we see some examples in creation that don't look like a family, a loving family household. Granted, but don't we generally see that that's the case? You don't get that from a random collocation of atoms, do you? You don't get that. You don't get community and love and the need for family by inorganic matter Bashing into each other for billions of years, and then all of a sudden we've got love. You know, I know that love's not a chemical. Hate is not a chemical. Hate is not DNA. Hate is actually something far superior to that. So what does God do? He's got his own household. He starts crea- creating animals that look like they're a household. What does he do then? Well, he creates man. Genesis one twenty six. And then he creates a woman. If you go down to verse 21 there, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and while he slept took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. God makes a household. What's left? The last thing that's left, be fruitful and multiply. Make it a family. Don't you know this? I mean, anyone here who's had children, you know that you can get married and then then there's the two of you, but there's a sense of family and household that comes with the addition of kids, doesn't it? It's almost like you sit there and you go, other people kind of see us as a household and a family, but when the kids come, we're household and family. And some of you have had your kids leave home and that's really cool and that's fine and you've got a good household happening, but doesn't it feel like a household and a home and a family when the kids come back and they're with you? Absolutely. So here's the thing. There always was a household. And what happened was that household created another household. But unfortunately, this household decided it didn't want to be part of God's household anymore. And disobeyed him. So what does God do? Well, if you actually get down to Genesis chapter 22, God decides that he's going to choose a special household. And the special household that we know in the Old Testament is Israel, the Jews. You see this in Genesis 22:16, where God says to Abraham, he says, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. God gave a bit of a test to Abraham, pretty hard one. I'll surely bless you and I'll surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you've obeyed my voice. So God decides to pour his love and his grace and his favor out on a particular group of people called the Jews, the Israelites. So he has a household. But you know what? When Jesus comes and he dies and he goes back to be with his father, God opens the doors so it's not just the Jews anymore, but it's actually everyone. Be an interesting question this morning, you know, who's who's actually descendant from Jews? Everyone's looking around and see who's got the big nose. I'm not Jewish. All right. Here's free. The really rough thing is let's be honest about this, biblically. If God didn't open the doors to Gentiles, which are non Jews, to come and be part of his household. Probably a lot of us would never have heard the the gospel, would we? We wouldn't wouldn't have heard about Jesus. In one sense, you kind of go, well, that sounds a bit unfair and it's a bit scary, but I don't think you should look at it that way. You just go, isn't this amazing? Isn't this amazing that God would take us, who by and large are not Jewish descendants, and say, come and be part of my household, come and be part of my family. And that's exactly what he does. And uh, if you'll be coming to the project the next few weeks, you'll hear... More from Ephesians 2. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So he's talking to all of us Gentiles, all right? We're not descendant of, descendants of Jews, we're Gentiles. And literally, in a spiritual sense, we were a long, long, long way off, a long way off from God because we weren't part of the Jewish nation. But what does God do? God takes people who are a long way off and brings them near For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two instead of the Jews and the Gentiles one, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. Preach peace... To the Gentiles, to the people who aren't part of the Jewish nation, he says, peace. And then he goes to the Jewish nation, he says, peace. Come and be one. Come and be part of my household. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Now that's interesting, isn't it? The Father. That is a, that's household terminology. And this is a critical verse. So then... You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So when you get brought in and God says, come and be part of my family, you're part of his household. You think about a well-functioning nuclear family where everyone's contributing. He's going, you come in. Come in and be part of my family. So I was going to show you a Venn diagram, but I'm going to go one better. My kit bag here. See this? This There's a lot of those Russian nesting dolls. What are they called? Yeah, I'm not even going to say that. I'll probably end up sounding like I'm swearing. See, this is what God does. God, in a sense, is the centre of every single household, and every time He creates something, He creates a household that looks a little bit like Him. It's it's got the same kind of shape that he has, and part of the reason part of the reason for that I think is quite logical. You you can't create something outside of who you are. Everything that you create is always a slice of who you are. So when God creates something, it looks a little bit like Him. It looks a little bit like the community that He's in. All right. We're going to get really specific here in a minute. God's actually the father of his household. Have a look at this scripture. 1 John 3 verse 1. See what kind of love the father has given to us that we should be called children of God and so we are. Think about this. This is amazing. Now Christians have heard this verse preached heaps probably and you've probably sung dumb songs. All right. Don't you hate it when there's, you hear a dumb song and it kind of wrecks the scripture for you and you can never get the melody out of your head when you read it. Oh, what manner of... Nice song, but you know what I'm... Yeah, yeah, thanks. Yeah, Carl will hammer that one out for us. But this really is amazing. You know why? Because every person in this room, separate from God, and God not working on them, would kill God if they got the chance. That's what pride is. Pride is me being the centre, and if God gets in the road of me being the centre, I'll kill him. We would all do it. But this God says, Oh, you proud warring enemy come and be in my family yeah that's a good plan all right everyone's going yeah nice plan i mean you imagine some of the angels that aren't omniscient that don't know everything just going are you sure you want to do that (laughs) all right those guys just killed you he's going yes yes i want to take warring orphan enemies and actually adopt them into my family into my household and they will live with me I mean, we're not necessarily that, that good at people who attack us embracing them, are we? We tend to want to push them further away. God says, come closer. We all know that if you bring an enemy closer, it's probably a very wise move, but there's a chance you're going to get hurt more. What does God do? He brings his enemies close and invites them into his household. This one here in Ephesians 3:14 to 15 I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. He's the dad. He's the dad of the whole world. He's the dad of his whole family. And like a a bride walks up the aisle and her last name changes, you come into God's household, you get named after him. Isn't that cool? You're not rebel, pathetic, Shin kicking brat. Your your child. Your your mom My name's on you. And he has a darn good name. His name has an outstanding reputation. You get his. Your name, a bit tarnished, you get his. All right. This is an incredible quote. I found this from John Stott. It's a little bit technical, but this is the only screen that's going to be a bit technical. He makes this comment on Ephesians 3.15, which I just read, and you'll see the point in a minute. At the same time, there's a deliberate play on words in the Greek sentence, since father is, I don't even know, I'm going to go phonetically, all right, because I don't know how to pronounce the Greek, uh, pater, and family is patria. In consequence, some translators have tried to preserve the verbal assonance in English and have rendered the phrase, so this is this phrase here, from whom the whole family in heaven and on earth is named. They have rendered the translation of that phrase, the father from whom all fatherhood derives its name. Isn't that interesting? Commentators point out that the word patria doesn't not normally mean fatherhood, but rather family. Nevertheless, it is a family descended from the same father, and so the concept of fatherhood is implied, and the abstract idea of paternity seems uppermost here. Here's where it gets really good, this next bit. It may be then that Paul is saying not only that the whole Christian family is named from the father, but that the very notion of fatherhood is derived from the fatherhood of God. So it's not like God is a father like we're a father. It's the reverse. We're a father like God is a father and he actually originates it. In this case, the true relation between human fatherhood and the divine fatherhood is neither one of analogy, God is a father like human fathers, nor one of projection, Freud's theory that we've invented God because we needed a heavenly father figure, but rather one of derivation. God's fatherhood being the archetypal reality the source of all conceivable fatherhood. Who knows what archetypal means? I had to hit the dictionary. I'm just going, eh? Hey, nice quote. Don't you love it how you say a quote's good and you just go, I don't even understand the main word in it. So you hit the dictionary. You know what an archetype is? It's an original model. That's what it is. It actually comes uh, from a Greek word uh, meaning a model. So what is this? It means if you're a dad here today and if in the future you're going to be a dad, you get your idea of fatherhood from the father. You, your fatherhood is derived from his fatherhood. That, that He just is. I mean, he gets called father all the time through the Bible because that's what he is. That's the role that he plays in his household. So if you want to learn how to be a good dad, you've got to look at the best dad and how he handles his family. Fair enough? All right. So what this means is between now and the end of the message, I'm going to smash out how God handles his family and how he works in his household and how dads ought to work in their households to reflect and to mirror God's fatherhood. Here we go. First one's this. So what I'm going to do on the left there is have uh, some scriptures showing how God deals with his household as a father and on the right, how a human dad should reflect the way that God does fatherhood. Now, some of you are probably thinking, okay, so I'm female and this has no relevance to me. It has a huge amount of relevance to you. If you're married, these are some of the things you should be praying for your husbands. Pray that they would have these kind of character traits. If you're not married, you should pray that God develops these character traits in the fellow that he's going to bring along for you to marry. If you're a young dude and you're not married yet, you better start developing some of these traits. You can do it. You don't have to wait till you, you get married and you start having kids to work out how to be a dad. You can start right now. But certainly there's a massive application for the dads here and there's a massive application for dads who have all their children have left home. There is still a massive role for you in church. So here we go. God the Father delights in his children. Check this out. Luke 2.14 this is when Jesus shows up on the scene the angels sing glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased I said to one of my classes the other day at the school here I said you know what God really likes you he likes you if you're in his household and, and, and you're part of his family he actually likes you Now I could say he loves you but we Christians, as Christians, you kind of hear that all the time, that God loves you, right? Saying that He actually likes you is a whole different thing, in a sense, because all of a sudden you get the feeling like He likes to be with you, which He does. Psalm 147, 11, The Lord takes pleasure in those who fear Him, in those who hope in His steadfast love. He actually takes pleasure in people that fear Him. What about this one? This is Psalm 149, verse 1. Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song. His praise in the assembly of the godly. Let Israel be glad in his maker. Let the children of Zion rejoice in their king. Let them praise his name with dancing, making melody to him with tambourine and lyre. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He adorns the humble with salvation. Let the godly exult in glory. Let them sing for joy on their beds. He enjoys us, But you know something? I'm going to put a twist, a bit of a sting in the tail here. Some of you might have heard me say this a few weeks ago. I think we're in danger uh, in our Christian culture of terminating on enjoying God's delight in us. And I'm not sure whether you picked it up, but there's actually a little kind of a twist in each one of those scriptures up there. It's not that God just delights you, delights in you. Check this out the top one. What's connected to God's pleasure or Him getting glory? That's what's connected. Glory in the highest, God's pleased. What about the next one? 47, 147, 11. What kind of person does the Lord take pleasure in? Those who fear Him. And those who hope in what? Yeah. So you fear Him and you hope in His steadfast love. He takes great delight in you. Do you see that? It's not actually terminating on you. It's still terminating on Him. And this is where I reckon sometimes in Christian culture... Uh, some authors and people who make comment, they, they, they are so overflowing in how much God delights and takes pleasure in people that they leave people terminating on themselves. And that is the surest way to wreck a human being is to leave them terminated on themselves. And God knows that. He knows that the best way to help someone and the best way for someone to fulfill everything that they were made to be is to actually terminate on Him and on His glory. You can see that actually in the scripture down the bottom there in Psalm 149. All right. Sure, it says God takes pleasure in his people, but that is sandwiched in between two whacking great big loaves of bread of God getting glory and God looking magnificent and God's people just enjoying that. And that's, that's kind of the, the difference. That's, that's the difference between people who love Jesus and those who don't is the thing at the bottom of their heart that makes them happy is God. Not what he says about them. And he says lots of amazing things about them. But God. Check this quote out from uh, John Piper. There is a devastating way to respond to God's commendation of us. What if we hear God's praise and are drawn away from delighting in God to delighting in God's delighting in us? What if we hear his praise as a tickler of what we really enjoy, namely being made much of? What if the bottom line of what makes us happy is not God himself, but God's attention, God's praise? If that is the bottom line, then we are not delighting in God, but only using delight in God to get commendations. That would be devastating. When God's delight in us lures us to delight in being delighted in, we are ceasing to do the very thing God delights in. It's a bit of a tongue twister, but do you get it? What God delights in is when you fear Him and when you hope in Him and when you trust in Him and when you call on Him to save you and He loves to die for you. He loves to die for you. He loves to help you. He loves to come alongside of you when you're struggling but not so that it can terminate on you, so that you can terminate on Him because that's how He made you. Your life gets dysfunctional when you don't terminate on Him because you just weren't made to do that. It's like using a dishwasher to undo a screw. You don't do it because it wasn't made for that. And if you try to do it, you're just going to mess a whole bunch of things up. I don't even know how you'd use a dishwasher to undo a screw, but anyway. So here we go. I'm going to get into uh, a human dad's reflection. You know what, dads? Watch your kids and just enjoy watching it. Just enjoy it. Life can get really busy sometimes, can't it? I've got four boys, my oldest is seven, youngest is two, and it's just on. It's on all the time. And a lot of the time, I'm just thinking survival. But I've been reminding myself lately, man, I just need to sit down and just watch them. I love watching them play. I love sitting in another room where they can't see me and just, uh, sorry, sorry, sitting next to the room that they're in where they can't see me and listening to them talk. That is the coolest thing. To hear my three-year-old and uh, my five-year-old just having conversations with each other. I mean, it spins me out. I'll tell you a game that my boys are into at the moment. This is, uh, this is really cool. And it would not happen in a girls-only household. But I have a boys-only household, so you just get boys-only illustrations today, right? My dudes said to me the other day, they said, come in and have a look at this new game we're playing. I'm going, this will be good. So I go in there. What have they got? Well, they got a balloon, right? boys in balloons are just going, it's going to get interesting. So what they do is they, they stand on opposite sides of the room. One of them's got the balloon and he kicks it up in the air, right? And the two of them run at each other and just crash into each other, right? And as they're falling or on the ground, if one of them can grab the ball, that's like you're the winner. That's what it is. And you know what he said? He goes, hey, we're playing AFL. There you go. Anyway, the other day I thought, let's have a bit of, you know, we had a bit of a rumble while this was going on because that kind of happens at our place too. And my three-year-old, he just doesn't even think about the consequences. He just runs in. He must have left the ground two metres away from me and just came in with kind of a flying kick side on and just bounced off the top of me and then twisted his wrist and then he was crying. But it's cool. It's cool to watch him. All right? It's really cool. And what you've got to realise, and we realise this very acutely with our family, is that there's a lot of people in our society, as soon as you have more than two kids, all of a sudden, they, just, they don't like kids as much. So you walk along and you've got four kids, they go, wow, that's weird. And especially weird if you have four boys. My, um, my wife had to take one of our boys to the ophthalmologist and uh, she just had three boys there with her at the time. You know, she, she walked through the door to this ophthalmologist. You know what he said to her? He said, what did you do wrong to deserve that? in front of my boys. And my oldest boy, uh, who was there for it, would have been six. He understands. You know, Ange comes home and tells me, I'm just going, yeah, well, what? I'm thinking karma. I'm thinking there's some karma coming your way. I'm going to ask you the question, what did you do to deserve your bleeding nose? <laughs> All right? Don't trash my dudes. I enjoy my dudes. All right? Enjoy your kids. We we're, uh, we're at Kmart a little while ago, and uh, I was just walking through the bike section, I mean, anyone who's had kids knows you just you take your kids to the toy section and it's kind of like uh, Fukushima, you know. By the end of it, it's kind of nuclear fall, fallout. Anyway, I'm walking around and this lady notices she got a trolley and a, and a child there. She notices that we've got four, four sons. And she said this to me in front of my boys. She said, uh, I'm glad it's you and not me that's got four boys in front of her kids and in front of my kids. And you know what I said to her? I said, yeah, I'm really glad about that too. I wouldn't want you to have another one. <laughs> and she said this to me. She said, uh, after that, she goes, I've only got three and that's bad enough. She said it in front of her kids and in front of mine. And I said to her, I said, it doesn't have to be like that. I said, we love it. We love having it. And there's this constant refrain that we, that we go through, and I'm sure others of you here do too, um, where people trash us and they trash our kids. Love your kids, delight in them and tell other people in front of them that you delight in them. Ange walked into a shop in Clifford Gardens and the guy said, you don't take those back here, you take them back at Big W. He's going, well, you need to take that back. <laughs> All right? Because I'm getting fired up here. All right? Don't trash my boys. And there's a sense where a good dad says, leave my guys alone. Leave my girls alone. Don't touch my my people. I love my people. And they verbally delight in their kids. So watch them and enjoy them. See, kids can tell if you delight in them or not. You you can't just use words with kids and say, yeah, yeah, I really like you and I really love you and then never spend any time with them, dads. Spend time with them and just sit there and smile and laugh as they do their crazy stuff. Now, I don't have any daughters... But I actually, I'm a bit of a people watcher. I just love watching little girls and just the way they do business. We've kind of got half a daughter from down the road there. She ends up at our place most of the time, uh, which my wife's not too upset about. But we just have a little bit of uh, estrogen investment in the place, all right? And I just find it really amusing. I just take pleasure in watching little girls be little girls because it's beautiful, isn't it? Yeah? Yeah. And dudes trying to axe each other and go to hospital. Alright, that's basically what you've got. Pretty girls doing cool things, nice and clean. Dirty dudes on the way to an emergency ward. That's pretty much how it works out. You see, I think, like for me, I look at my boys and I just think there's a little slice of God's personality. And I can actually delight in God in delighting in my children. I just do. And in fact, that would be the case here. We have a far better representation of the character and the personality of God by having all of you here today than if we don't have you. Because we're all coming out of, being spawned out of God's character and His personality. All right, let's move on. Number two, fathers are responsible for their household. Check check out how God the Father does this in Genesis. So actually, before I start that, what we've got is uh, human beings have just disobeyed God for the first time. They didn't do what he asked them to do. And it's put us on this very slippery, nasty slope. Excuse me. To the point where we are now. What does God do about that? Genesis 3.15. I'll put enmity between you, that's the devil, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. One of the woman's offspring shall bruise your head, serpent, devil, and you shall bruise his heel. You know, God could have washed his hands, couldn't he, of humanity, and he wouldn't have been wrong to do that. He could have washed his hands of every single person here and said, you did it, you got yourself into hell, you can just live there. But you know what he does? He actually takes responsibility for his household and starts revealing his plan to do something about it. wasn't his fault. He didn't have to do anything about it. Could have washed his hands, but he loves you and he loves his household and, he's, and he goes, I'm going to work out a plan and a way that I'm going to sort this thing out with my family. And that involves someone being born to a woman that's going to stomp on the devil's head Genesis 3 verse 20, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and them. So what you got prior to that is Adam and Eve have realized that they've done the wrong thing and they need to cover themselves up because they've worked out they're naked. With leaves. Now, you're going to choose some leaves pretty carefully because they could get really uncomfortable. All right, it's probably not going to be mulberry leaves or cactus leaves or anything like that. That would be really uncomfortable. All right. But they go out and they try to sort it out. What does God do? He goes, no, I'm going to kill the first animal. I will kill the first animal so that you can have clothes and I'll make them for you. This is God taking responsibility for his household. Verse 22, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Here's what's happening. If Adam and Eve, in their broken, separated condition between them and God, get to the tree of life, they can live forever separated from God. God doesn't want that to happen in his household, in his family. So he says, righto, I'm going to kick you out. And I'm going to guard the way to the tree of life because I'm going to come for you. I'm coming for you. I've already told you that someone's going to come and tread very mercilessly on the head of the devil, on the head of the serpent, because I'm coming for you. Isn't this cool? God doesn't have to do any of this. This is what he does. He takes responsibility for his household. So, how should human dads reflect this? Well, the first way is by understanding the difference between sins of commission and sins of omission. And this, uh, this whole concept is particularly true of Australian dudes and especially Australian dudes in the church. A sin of commission is when you do something that you shouldn't do, a sin of omission is when you should have done something and you didn't do anything. Most Australian men in most churches in Australia, I think, add up their sins of commission, but never ever add up their sins of omission. Dudes in Australian churches, which include us, are more likely to be doing nothing than to be doing bad things. And God would have us know today, and He would have you know today, gentlemen, if you're doing nothing at home, that you're sinning. If there's something that you should have done that you haven't done, You're not doing what God wants you to do. It says this explicitly in James 4 verse 17 where it says, So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is a sin. All right, now we're in trouble. All right, because most of my life I think I spent thinking about sins of commission and you end up doing nothing. And God's going, well, I needed a man to get a job done there. And where was he? Oh, he's the sinner sitting doing nothing. And the the interesting thing is that if you actually look at the fall of man in Genesis chapter 3, it specifically says that after Eve had eaten the fruit, she turned around and gave some to her husband who was with her. What was he doing? Nothing. Now, I don't know for certain, but I'm kind of half proposing around the traps that there's a good chance maybe Adam actually sinned before Eve did, because he should have done something, shouldn't he? He stands there, his wife is taking herself and the rest of the world to hell and does nothing. Which is what dudes do. And I know, I know in my own household, when things start going haywire, there's about a ninety five percent chance they're going haywire in my household because I'm doing nothing. What am I doing? He's just going, it's not my fault. It's going it doesn't matter. It's not about fault, it's about responsibility. And if your family is going to hell, it doesn't matter whether you did anything wrong or not, it's your job. So get it done. Don't stand by and just watch it happen. Get it done. Get involved. I was talking to my uh, oldest boy about this this morning. I I was talking to him about Adam and Eve, and and, uh, I said, what do you reckon? I said, who should God ask the questions of first, after they've done the wrong thing, Adam or Eve? She ate the fruit. And he goes, Eve. I said, no. He asks Adam because it's Adam's job. It's Adam's responsibility. And we all know, don't we, in our society, in our culture, and in biblical culture, that when the dad takes responsibility and takes leadership in the house, the house is happier. Yeah? And not in a control freak, pressure kind of driving with a whip kind of way, in a shepherd kind of way. I'll get to that in a minute. It just works better, doesn't it? When dad loves and when dad takes responsibility and when things are happening in his house that aren't good, that's my job to do something about that. So in my house, if it gets to the point, and I've talked to my boys about this, I'm pretty sure I have, if if it gets to the point, actually I was talking to my oldest boy this morning, if it gets to the point where the boys start going right off the rails, whose job is it? It's mine. Okay, so if my wife loses her walk with God and starts heading off, whose responsibility is that? That's mine. And you just keep taking it, gentlemen. It's your job. And you might say, yeah, it's hard. Well, carry the load. That's that's why God made men men. Carry the load and get the job done. Look after your people. Don't do nothing. And maybe some of you need to repent because you just do nothing all the time. I'm not even going to go into the stats, but there is a freaky set of statistics about dudes who play computer games when they're married, uh, dudes have all sorts of addictions, addictions with alcohol and all the rest. And what happens with their family? Well, they're doing nothing in their family and their family's going to rack and ruin. I'm not saying that mothers don't have a massive role and that mothers aren't central to what happens in a home. I do think that by and large, if mum's struggling but dad's doing well, the family can just about get by. But if dad's not doing well and mum's really strong, it's a real weight upon the family. It's a huge weight upon the family and all of a sudden the family ends up starting to crumble because it doesn't have that leadership of the father in the household. Am I saying that the fathers need to drive like a dude on a horse driving cattle? I'm not saying that. The fathers do need to love their families, don't they? And when their family starts to lose the plot, fathers need to get engaged. See, if I get home and uh, my family is going haywire, in a disciplined sense, whose job is it? Well, it's my job. My wife's probably been fighting for an hour and a half or two hours in the afternoon to pull the kids in the line and someone's got to take leadership and take control there and that's not because she hasn't been doing a good job. Don't hear me putting my wife down. But she needs backup and she needs backup from someone who's going to engage and who's going to do what needs to be done. Oh, okay, so we've got three out of the four boys going rank. That's my deal, send them my way. All right. Yeah, I'm tired. I've just walked in from work. I've had a hard day. I've had a thousand people talking to me about a thousand different things. Yes, I feel drained, but when I walk through the front door, it's my job. Every person in your house, dads, is your responsibility. Someone needs to give oversight. Someone needs to carry people on their shoulders. Everything that happens... And the weird thing is, gentlemen, <laughs> and I reckon this is true, usually when men stuff up, they do an Eve thing and they blame the devil, right? They go all charismatic and blame the, de- the devil, all right? <laughs> which is what Eve did. But God says, what's going on? She goes, it was the devil. It wasn't the devil. It was Adam. He was the problem. <laughs> he should have done something. Someone was needed to stand up there and to stand against it. I've just been at a couple of in-services recently where um, they're talking about the adolescent brain. Right? And you've, you've probably heard this before. They always like to roll this stuff out and I'd always try to work it out. It's not an insult to them, but they say, oh, the, the male brain is not completely mature until it's about 25 or 26, right? And all the women in the room go, amen. Well, they don't say amen because it's not a Christian. They? They're like, yeah, it's true. That's why they're such idiots, all right? And you know what? This is what I've been saying to them recently. I said, that's why they go to war. Isn't it? If you want to find someone to accomplish a really good task for you, what do you do? You find the guy that doesn't think about the consequences that much who's really strong. (coughs) All right? Isn't this part of what it means to be a dad? Not to be an idiot. All right? There's enough dads who are idiots. Okay? But isn't that what it's about to be a dad? It's walking in and just going, okay... It doesn't matter what the consequences are. This is my deal and I'm going to deal with it. I'm going to do whatever it takes and it doesn't mean that I'm going to be incredibly authoritative and just kill everyone and mess up the discipline that my wife's been doing and just kind of trash things in the house but it does mean that I'm going to stick with it as long as I need to stick with it to get it to a place where it needs to be. All right, last one. Fathers shepherd the household. You know, it's been said that you drive cattle and you lead sheep. So it's no surprise that when you start reading scriptures about God's fatherhood, it comes across and he says very clearly he's a shepherd. You've got that in Psalm 23. It gets read at every second funeral, it would seem. The Lord's my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. There are too many dads that are cattle drivers, control freaks. And they're not shepherds. Shepherds good. You can't drive a sheep. A sheep will not be driven. You don't stand behind a sheep and flog it. You lead it. That's what you do. You lead it. You lead by example. Romans 5 verse 8 to 10. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You know what that means? It means when you're in your worst state, God's shepherding heart gets aroused. He sees someone, sees a dumb sheep stuck on a ledge, right? That can't get itself out of trouble. That's a job for a shepherd. So I'm going to go and get that sheep and I'm going to look after it. and I'm going to shepherd it back. This is what God does in his household. He shepherds us back. Gentlemen, this means that when you get home, you need to be on. God is always on with his shepherding. You would have a show of hands, but who knows when you're tired after a day of work, you hit the house, the last thing that you feel like doing, gentlemen, is fully engaging with your kids. God does. All right? He just does. You can see it in Christ's example, even when he was tired. He's still stretched out for his kids. One day, I'm just going to educate some of you because some of you have never seen these before, right? This here, as you can see on the label there is a Nerf gun. Has anyone never seen one of these before? Cool. I'm educating you, right? Here we go. A Nerf gun is, uh, is an offensive weapon for boys. Okay, so just picture this, and it goes like that. So you kind of get to shoot bullets. I was going to shoot it at some of you, but we don't have a risk assessment for it yet. So, oh yeah, all right, I got home. Um, oh, geez, it might have been six, six or so months ago, and uh, didn't know anything about it. Right? Open the door, and I've got my three oldest boys. They've all got Nerf guns, and they're loaded. And worse than that, one of them had just bought a machine gun that shoots three bullets a second, right? So it's battery-powered, and this thing's about that long and about that big, and he's just standing there packing. <laughs> and you know, there's, there's no second of grace after that door opens. It's just, unload, boys, unload! And it is, Dad, just, we've got a rule in the house, you don't shoot an unarmed man, but I don't know what happened to it that day because I just walked in and just copped it all, right? And you know, most days when I get home, I just hit home and I've got a a three-year-old grabbing onto my leg. I've got a seven and five-year-old trying to tackle me. And you know what? I'm tired. And it'd be nice to go and sit down. I need to take leadership. Does that mean I force it? No, it doesn't mean I force it. It's not like you've got two alternatives. Do nothing or force it. Shepherd's in the middle. Guide, pastor. It's your job, gentlemen. Discipline. Shepherd the household. Man, I'll tell you, there are times, and uh, I don't even know what I'm talking about yet because my oldest kid's seven, all right? But there are dead set times in our house where my wife and I are tearing out our hair, just working out how do I discipline in a way that's going to reach my child's heart? Well, that's going to make Dad pray because it's his job to work it out, won't it? That's heavy. He's got to do that. Everything we're doing is not working. Well, Dad better start praying. It's his job. He's a shepherd. So shepherd. Take spiritual initiative. Dads need to be the ones talking to their kids about God. Taking the initiative in it. Take the initiative. Make sure you, you know, you don't want to have your wife sitting there on the table tapping her fingers wondering when you're actually going to bring up something about God or when you're going to pull out a Bible and read it with your kids. Get it done. Make it happen. In Job chapter 1, I'm just going to read it to you. Job chapter 1, verse 4 to 5. Job's sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day. And they'd send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them, come and have a party. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus, Job did continually. Job took initiative in his household. Kids have had a party. Maybe they did the wrong thing. So I'm going to get up in the morning and I'm going to offer a sacrifice to God just in case they actually got things wrong the night before. It's what a good dad does. Don't go slaying cats and things in your backyard, right? But take the message out of it. I'm not going to pay your RSPCA bill, all right? In short, dads, you're the family pastor. That's just how it is. Right? You say, I didn't put my hand up to be a pastor. You put your hand up to be a dad. You put your hand up to be a pastor. It's your job. Get it done. Look after your kids. Shepherd your kids. You say, it's too big for me. You're darn right it is. It's going to make you pray fast and depend upon Christ, isn't it? Because it is too big for you. I'm going to show you a bit. teaching me how to whether okay, you know it or not do you enjoy that? it's good eh? I just wanted to finish on this note I started with uh, a bunch of stats about households there's a great hope for those uh, 18,000 orphans over two years from their father. They're not orphans from their mother, but from their fathers. And you know what it is? It's the church. It's God's household. That's what it is. A couple of scriptures and then I'll close. Jesus says in Luke 18, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time, in the age to come eternal life. What's Jesus saying? He goes, if because of me you lose your dad, you're going to get dad back. It may not be the same dad, but you get a dad back, and you get more than one dad back. You become part of my household, my family, you're going to get a whole bunch of dads that you never had before. That's what Jesus is saying. It's clear in other uh, quotations on that scripture that, that Jesus is talking specifically about fathers and also other things, but about fathers. And this one's probably the most powerful one. This is um, 1 Corinthians 4:15 to 17. This is Paul. It says, For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. He's talking to Timothy. Sorry, to the church. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That's why I sent you, Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Timothy had a Greek dad, we know from Acts 16, he wasn't a believer. What's Paul doing? He sees himself as a father. He says, he calls him his own child. In Christ, I became your father, my dear child. And there is an urgent need in churches to have older men commit to being in churches and commit to being fathers to people. What Paul says in 1 Corinthians is true. There's lots of guides, but there's not many dads. Which is why if you're a dad, or if you're, this is one thing I'm really excited about that's happening in the project here, is we've got some older men whose families have left home. And you know what? I'm really excited at them, expanding their fatherhood over people in the church. This is why older men need to not disengage from churches but be part of churches because there's going to be a whole generation of young people who come through our churches that don't have any contact with their dads. Agreed? And they need one. They need a dad. So you come in if you're an older man and you say, okay, who can I be a little bit of a dad toward? The greatest compliment I've ever had paid to me in my role at the school is students now, in one sense it's bad because you if you're getting called a dad, it's because you look old, right? But students are starting to say this to me. They say, you've been like a father to me. And I think this is what Paul's talking about here. We need more men in churches where younger people say to them, you're like a dad to me. Timothy would have said that of, of Paul. So I appeal to you, older men... Where are you committed? Are you committed to expanding your fatherhood over people who need it and being a father? Or are you playing your own game? Giving what you want, not giving the rest. Whatever. There's a call. There's a need for fathers in the church and there's not many of them. But the ones that are there, is wow. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't it beautiful when someone who doesn't have a dad Gets a dad in the church that they never even dreamed they'd have. Maybe they've got three dads now. That's one of the questions I ask my boys reasonably often. I say, how many dads have you got? I test them. I say, two. You and Jesus. Perfect. I want to just pray. Jesus, thank you for this morning. Thanks for being such a good dad. God, it may be that Father's Day is more about our children for those who have them than about us. So I just pray for a really good day. For dads who have got kids at home today, I pray for a really good day today, Lord. A really good day with the kids. a good shepherding day, a good watching day, just a delight day. Pray today would just be a real delight day, Lord. And even in those moments where things go haywire and everyone's complaining and everything's really hard, that somehow in there, God, you'd help the dads to delight in their kids and be engaged with them and not want to just brush them off. God, I pray for every man here, whether it be in the household of your church, God, or in their own households, I pray that they would always be the last man standing. That they wouldn't give way when everyone else is giving way and everyone else has had enough that the men wouldn't. They haven't had enough. Somehow they're getting some kind of source of strength and support from you, God, and they're just being strong. And when no one else stands, when everyone else has crumbled, they're the ones still there by the strength of you, by the strength of your Holy Spirit inside of them. they stand and they keep shepherding and they keep leading and taking responsibility over their household. And God, I pray today a blessing upon every household, Every household, a blessing upon every family, especially as the dad does what he needs to do. Lord, I pray that you would bless the families. And I pray maybe even for some dads, Lord, that this might be a turning point and a marker for them where they step up even more than they have before. Lord, and I pray that there'd be some of them where their wives would just go, Who the heck are you? But they engage and they're delighting in stuff and they're taking responsibility and there's really, really good things happening and good blessings that you're bringing about through them. Amen.